My message this morning is God at work, and I've decided that over the, this Sunday and the following one, next week, and then after Garth has returned with Michelle back to Queensland, uh, following their uh, time down here, I will then conclude with the third one. Today, we're looking at the whole idea of God's vision for his church, but uh, not our personal vision as a, as a church. Then we're going to look at the mission of our church, of a, a church. What is a mission? The mission. Um, and then what is the vision for this particular church uh, as we think it through? Because it's so important that we as a church understand who we are and what we're about because it will determine everything we do or don't do. So I encourage you to be a part of these three uh, if you're away on vacation, I encourage you to still uh, tune in and uh, listen as we look at these things together. Today I've decided under God, where I believe, to look at Zechariah 4 um, because, well, let me just start this way. I, very, I know very little of your history as a church and I've been told some things and you've had ups and downs and stuff and most churches, every church does. Uh, and so I, I'm um, not wanting to know much about your history, but you who have been here a while know quite a lot about your history. But what I do know, need to know, uh, us to know is that you can't change history. It's happened, it's, it's, it's there forever. It cannot be changed, but you can make history, right? Um, there's nothing uh, that takes away the past like the future. So we need to forget the past and learn from it, sure, but we need to face the future and we need to move into the future as a church. After 70 years in exile, the Israelites had been taken captive and uh, they were in Babylon and there they were promised by Jeremiah that it would only be 70 years and then the way would open up for them to return. And as God's promise uh, always comes true, that's what happened. And the uh, emperor at the time released them to return to Israel and to rebuild Jerusalem, the walls and the temple as a priority, and then to dwell there again, to return to the land. And a great number of the Israelites returned. Um, a great number, but was still very small. And they began to rebuild. And then they were quite excited when they laid the foundation or cleared and then relayed the foundation for the new temple. Because that was the priority, to get the temple built in Jerusalem and then everything else, the walls and everything after that. They rejoiced when they laid the foundations but two things happened. Some of the ones who were there who had remembered Solomon's temple looked at the foundations and thought, oh, and they cried because this was nothing compared with, it was just the foundation, but even so they could see it was going to be nothing compared with Solomon's temple that had been destroyed by the enemy. But the second thing that happened at that time was that the enemies around Jerusalem, around that area, who were opposed to the Jews uh, returning, they stirred up a whole lot of trouble. They discouraged, it says in, in Ezra. You can read it in Ezra 3 to 5. 
They discouraged the people. They made them afraid to build. And they bribed officials. You know, uh, politics hasn't changed. (laughs) They bribed the officials against them to frustrate their purpose. They wrote a letter to the, the emperor, to King Artaxerxes in Persia, the Persian king. And he, they said, you know, these, these Jews, they're, they're, they're rebelling. They're going to build this and then they're going to rebel against you and stirred up Artaxerxes against them. So he's commanded them to stop. And so the Israelites who had been sent back and returned and getting established couldn't continue building the temple. So they stopped. And it stopped for 16 years. Then God raised up Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the prophet. And you can read Haggai's prophecy, four chapters, if I remember right. And it's so appropriate to encourage the people and to challenge them about what they're doing. They're living in panelled houses. They're looking after themselves, but they're not building the temple that God sent them to build. God's house, he says, lies in ruins while you panel your own houses. Zechariah was given seven visions to communicate to the people. God revealed to him seven things in a special way so that he would encourage the people to come and rebuild. Now, uh, Zechariah was a prophet. God spoke through him and God uh, wanted to inspire his nation, inspire the people to trust him and to rebuild the temple. And we're looking at the fourth of these visions, uh, four, chapter 4, and it, it is a, a special vision to the people about what God wants to do when God is at work and God wants to work through his people. And it starts off, it, it, it's God's words to them, but it's also God's word to us today as a church Uh, we need to take on board what, what is happening here back thousands of years ago in Israel and what God is saying to them, he is saying to us. First of all, God's word to them and to us is that we need to see this church as God sees it. They needed to see the work that God had for them to do as God saw it. And so it starts off in verse 1, it says, He wakened me. Sometimes we need to be awakened to the value of what we're doing. Now, John's out there working in the garden just about every day. But he's part of a building the body of Christ and the glory of God's name is, is extended because he does his part. Sorry, John. I'm sure you don't mind, but yeah. I'm talking about everybody. We all have a part to play. And our part, we might look at it and think, well, I just look after the kitchen or I just do this. And that's not just, by the way. I, 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 do, I do the cleaning. I, I um, you know, um, sing or whatever. It might be. 
There's all sorts of things that you get involved in in the life of the church. But we need to be awakened to see how does God see what we're doing and what we're a part of in the building of his church. He awakened me and he says, what do you see? Just as an aside to go back to Haggai, the previous prophet, he said in chapter 2, verse 3, Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you as nothing? That's the way the people were thinking. It seems to be nothing. What I'm doing is nothing, big deal. Have you ever thought that about what you're doing? We need to see this church as God sees it, not merely from a human perspective. And what God revealed to the people back then and to us today is that his work, yes, taking those rocks and putting them in place and covering them uh, and, and, and putting whatever they did between the rocks, if they did that, and, the, <laughs> and, and the, getting the timber and cutting it to size and putting the framework up and the rebuilding of the temple is all physical labor, but God says you are building. I want you to see it as a a golden lampstand. This is something where I will be glorified. Gold speaks of God and it speaks of purity. And the lampstand is a bearer of light. And I want you to see that building this temple back then was going to be a place where God would be glorified and where the light of the truth would be made available to all peoples. And God actually said that uh, through uh, the prophet Isaiah when he said, I will make you a light to the Gentiles for you will bring my salvation to the ends of of the earth. So, In Revelation chapters 1 to 3, we find that Jesus himself looks at the churches just like us, a group of people meeting, probably not in such an ornate place as this, just in somebody's home or in some place where they met together back in the first century. And they were just a bunch of Christians. And he said, you're a lampstand. That's what we are. And so when we are being involved in the life of this church, we need to see it as God sees it. His glory, his light is to shine from this place. Amen. God's temple, speaking in the New Testament, Paul says about the church, he says God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. So there's an easy connection between Zechariah 4 and us today. How does God see this church, Pakenham Baptist Church? How does he view it? What is his vision? I believe God's vision for any church includes these things, and they'll be all up there. A church that, first of all, manifests the life of Christ. Because we are filled with the Spirit, we have the Spirit of God, and we're to manifest the fruit 
of love, joy, peace. Uh, yeah, we can have a building and we can have services, we can have great music, we can have great uh, activities and kids' programs and all the rest of it. But God wants, a, first of all, a church where he is revealed, his light, his life shown through us. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another, that you're careful how you speak to somebody. And if you don't agree with what they've said or done, then tell me and I'll talk to them if I feel it's necessary to talk to an elder. Don't go up to them and haul them over the coals about it. I mean, we're to love. All right, we might disagree. You'll disagree with me and I'll disagree with you. In our marriage, we disagree about things. I'm sure you do too. We have different minds and we have different... But, but love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all the fruit of the Spirit. And that's just the first one. God wants a church that manifests the life of Christ. He wants a church that is established on the truth of Christ. Not just some church that does whatever they think is the right thing to do or believe what, the, what they should believe. A, a, a church that is founded on and maintains the truth of the gospel, of the truth of the, the New Testament. Um, a, truth, a, a church that fulfills the mission of Christ to go into all the world and make disciples, uh, into Pakenham and into the wide world, to have a mission uh, mindset. And, and we don't have at the moment uh, currently in the church someone who is identified as the person or group who are, who are responsible for encouraging our support of and prayer for and our involvement with missions overseas, uh, cross-cultural, not necessarily overseas, but work of missions. And that's something we need to work on as a church. We need to have... Uh, a strong focus on not just mission in our area, but mission to the world. A church that cares for the needy, that really does care, that reaches out to help people, that makes ourselves available to those who are in need. A church that places a high priority on worship and, and prayer. It's a priority. Not just to come here to be at church, but to actually worship to lift our hearts in praise to God and to pray, to pray together in groups, to come together when prayer meetings are organised and, and to pray. A church that um, has a kingdom view, though we're not just selfish, we're not just interested in ourselves, uh, we're concerned for all God's kingdom, wherever God is at work, whatever church it might be. We're at we need to be a church that is generous. A church that gives opportunity for all who belong to develop and exercise their gifts for the benefit of others. And there are people who are doing, who have gifts in this church who may not be using those gifts. And a gift, by the way, is something that you like to do, you can do, and God uses you in it. That's the key. Um, I might 
like to, sorry to use those, but I like to sing. Um, maybe I can sing in tune. But when God uses me in that role, that's a gift. It's not just a talent or ability. It's a gift when God empowers and uses it. So a church that, is, um, that develops people's gifts and encourages people to get involved and see how their gifts manifest and then use them and encourage them in the development of their gifts. A church that remains steadfast through persecution and other attacks of the evil one from within as well as from out. A, a church that stands firm in that. And then finally, a church that, that has leaders who lead and are true examples of servant leadership. Do you see this church as God sees this church? Do you? Or do you see the potential of what God wants this church to be? You don't need to be a big church to be all that God calls you to be. Secondly, we find as God spoke through the prophet Zechariah to the people back then and to us today, that we need to rely on God to do the building. You see, the people back then were faced with an enemy. The enemy was discouraging. They discredited the people. They frustrated them and they stopped them working. And then here we have God speaking through Zechariah, saying to them, saying to Zerubbabel, the, the leader, the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Now, the word might is the word for military power. Here was a group of people who'd come from captivity. They had nothing but the forks that they used to, to bale the hay or move, you know, throw the hay over the out to the paddocks or whatever, they, they, didn't have, they might have made a few little swords for themselves. They, they had nothing and they didn't, weren't strong. They didn't have a lot of men or women to go out and fight. So they didn't have anything to be able to face the, the wrath of the, the emperor and his mighty army with their shields and with their swords and with their spears. But God says, it's not by might. You won't win again in the battle against anyone by might because you haven't got it and it's not by might. Nor by power. And that word is different. It actually has to do with my own personal strength and ability. So whether it's by combining your whole group of um, eligible soldiers to fight a war or whether it's you as an individual, each one of you, He's saying to the people back then, it's not by might or by power, it's by my spirit. You just trust me, rely on God to do the building. You get into it and I will look after everything by my spirit, says the Lord. Jesus said, I will build my church, not our church, my church, his church. I will build 
my church. Every one of those words is important. Faith begins where possibility ends, not by might or power. And he's saying to these people and to us, not just to rely on God's power in the face of human weakness, but to rely on God's power and sovereignty in the face of obstacles. Oh, yes, there's mountains. He says uh, to Zerubbabel, listen to the words, Who are you, O great mountain? Not to Zerubbabel. He's saying to Zerubbabel, talking about the mountain that stood in the way of them rebuilding, saying, Zerubbabel, listen to me. Who are you, O great mountain? You know, what's great to God? (laughs) Nothing. I mean, he created the mountains. He created the universe. He just spoke and it all existed, just like that, as we've heard earlier today. What's a mountain to God? What's an army? What's a a king on a throne? (laughs) Proverbs 21, verse 1, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Don't worry about the the emperor. Don't worry about his mighty army. You've got no might or strength or power. It's by my spirit, says the Lord. What are you, O mountain? Who are you? Nothing. Faith that overcomes obstacles by relying on God's spirit to do what we cannot do ourselves. Jesus spoke about this when he said in Matthew 17, verse 20, I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Same thing. Old Testament, New Testament, it's God saying, it's my work, you're doing my work. Any mountain, I will remove. So in your area of ministry within the church or in the church in general, what are the mountains? What's the obstacles? What is stopping you? Is it lack of people helping in the ministry? I know that the children's ministry need more help and probably other ministries do too. Well, it's not a mountain that can't be removed. God is able to do whatever he knows needs to be done in order for you to fulfill the ministry God has called you to within this church. So, before Zerubbabel, he goes on to say to the mountain, hey, mountain, you're nothing, but before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. I'll not only remove you, it'll be flat. Nothing in the way at all. And it's through Zerubbabel. I'm going to use my servant, the leader of the nation, to uh, enable this to happen. God is working, but he uses people always. So what happened? Well, the enemies, they started rebuilding, and the enemy, as you read back in Ezra, Um, enemy uh, people around the governors and so on wrote to the king 
out of Xerxes and said, hey, hey listen, um, I almost called him mate. <laughs> no, they wouldn't say that. <sighs> King Artaxerxes. Um, These guys are building again after, you know, you said they're not to. So what happened? They did a search. The king ordered a search and they went through the records and they found, oh, these people have been given the go-ahead to rebuild. So what? He said, all right, go ahead, send this letter to the people of Israel Yes, go and rebuild. And what's more, I want the enemies, the ones who had written to him, those governors and so on, I want them to help finance the building of this temple. So God used the enemies to supply the needs of the people who were building and God gave the go-ahead. It was not by might or power, it was by my spirit. And we need to believe that with this church. That God is able to do far greater things than we even imagine. If we trust him and we do what he calls us to do. And finally, to rely on, finally in this point, so I'll get there. Rely on God's promise in the face of dismissive attitudes. You see, it says in verse 10, whoever has despised the day of small things. Some people look at, you know, Crossway Baptist and Sindel Baptist, then look at Pakenham Baptist and say, I love the way, I'm sorry about this, but, you know, I'm, I'm just using an illustration. I don't care the size of a church, and God doesn't either, but it's wonderful to have such a wonderful ministry that, both those churches I mentioned are doing. And it's wonderful God has raised up and, and they're, they're doing great things. But we're not to look at our church and even look back in the history and see the numbers of people and the programs and the rebuilding of this, the, the, the building of this auditorium and moving from there to here and, and all the rest of it. And now uh, we're in a lower spot than we were then. And so we need to think, little and, 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 and despise the day of small things and not really see it through God's eyes. Those, God says, whoever despise the day of small things will rejoice and see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. <laughs> God's going to do it. And those who were dismissive in their attitude will rejoice when they see what God does. Amen. I want some more hallelujahs to that. Once a bit better than that. Come on. Amen. So then he says, and you will bring forth a capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. I'm going to finish the job, the the capstone, the top stone, the final stone that goes into place to finish the temple. You're going to bring it forward and everyone's going to stand back and say, grace, grace to all, beauty, beauty to it. It's just glorious. That's what he's saying here. It's going to be completed. I'm going to make sure, God says, that that happens. Nothing will stand in the way of God. 
except, can I say, our willingness to play our part. Their willingness back then to restart building the temple, our willingness to get involved in rebuilding this church. And thirdly, my last point is, is, is somewhat brief, but let me just go through it. We need to work together under God's appointed leaders. So we need to, first of all, see this church as God sees it. We need to rely on God in, to do the building, but we need to uh, work together under God's appointed leaders. And for this, in, in this picture that God, the analogy that God gives in, in Zechariah 4 is of the, the, the lampstand and then two olive trees and two branches of the olive tree, it goes on to say at the end of the chapter, um, that feed the oil, olive oil, into the lampstand so that it, it shines and it operates properly. So four times in this chapter, God, uh, through the angel, speaks to Zerubbabel by name. In the previous chapter, in chapter 3, it's dealing with Jeshua, the high priest. And if you read back in, in Ezra, they were the two men who spearheaded the rebuild, rebuilding of the temple right back at the beginning. When they first arrived back, they were the ones, Zerubbabel and Jeshua, and others drawn in to rebuild the temple. Now he's, he's saying these two men whom God has raised up as leaders, they're, um, they're appointed by God, first of all. They were chosen by God and appointed. And uh, God's method is to work through leaders. Leaders in your ministry, in, in the children's ministry, the youth, Bible studies or whatever it might be, God chooses to work through leaders. That's a way God has always worked and continues to work. So they're appointed by God, but also they're anointed by God. The two olive trees, the branches that feed the oil into the, the, the um, lampstand. We are called to be conduits, to allow God to work through us. And he will not work through us when there's a blockage. Remember John 15, abide in him and you'll bring forth much fruit. So we are not to grieve the Holy Spirit because of sin in our lives or pride or an unwillingness to listen to others and their point of view and all that goes with the stuff that creates problems within a church. We're not to grieve the Holy Spirit and not, what's more, in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 19, we're not to quench the Spirit. Not to do anything that will quench his ministry. By the way, Jesus was filled with the Spirit from birth, from before birth. He was, fill, he was filled with the Spirit always, but he was anointed as well at, at the baptism and then on through his ministry. You see, anointing is different from filling. We should all be filled with the Spirit. Anointing is God's blessing and empowering of the gifts that he's given us to do, to use. So anointed ministry, anointed is in God empowered. 
So do not put out the Spirit's fire, it says in the NIV in that verse. Do not quench the Spirit. Don't do anything that will hinder the Spirit of God working as leaders, but as all of us, I'm sure it applies. I want to finish with a story. Old Fred's hospital bed was surrounded by his loved ones. Suddenly, he motions frantically to the pastor. Fred uses his last bit of energy to scribble a note and then dies. So he handed the note after it died to the pastor and it says, Help, you're standing on my oxygen hose. You don't want to stand on the oxygen hose. You don't want to stand on, you don't want to be in the, allow anything to prevent the Holy Spirit from working in your life and through your life to others in the ministry of this church, in the outreach of this church. We are to be conduits, freely allowing God to work through us. That's where it's at as a church. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this analogy that you've, a vision that you gave to Zechariah, applying both to Israel back then and to us today. May we as a church truly see what you have given us here in this church as uh, through your eyes, Lord, that we may see as you see and that we may trust you no matter how weak we feel, no matter what our resources are or are not, we want to look to you in faith. And we trust you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.